The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, a senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, there's a lot of talk going on in the news today about human rights in China. Also today, I saw a lot of discussion online about human rights in Zambia, where authoritarianism is apparently on the rise under President Edgar Lungo. So we see a lot of discussion about human rights in both areas, in both regions, but we don't actually see a lot of discussion about human rights in the China-Africa dialogue. And this is fascinating because these two regions in many ways are defined by the West in human rights terms. We talk about democracy in Africa and which way African countries are going. Are they tilting more towards the West where it's more open and liberal? Are they tilting more towards China's model, which is more authoritarian? And obviously, certainly in the China-U.S. debate, human rights has for decades been very, very prominent, even though under the Trump administration, it's been downplayed a lot. And even under Barack Obama, it was downplayed quite a bit because of other issues. But that said, today we're going to focus on human rights in the China-Africa discussion. And I think what will surprise people, Kobus, is how for us in the West, human rights, particularly in a Chinese context, is always seen as a very sensitive issue. But when you talk to Chinese people about human rights and Chinese political and thinkers and scholars, um, they have a it's not as sensitive. They just have a very, very different outlook on what the definition of human rights is. And I think this is interesting because you just mentioned this earlier in our discussion before the show, how the West has come to define the narrative on human rights. But it's definitely not a universal narrative. Yes, that's true. And and I think it's, it's you know, China is a very good example of this. Um you know, in the sense that that all of the all of the development that China has achieved is, to a certain extent, in 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 the on the Chinese side, defined as a human rights victory. So, for example, providing housing to such a large number of of Chinese people, providing water or sanitation, those are defined as human rights victories. And it's an interesting, you know, it's it's an interesting situation looking at it from the African side because if you know, in the in the South African uh, Constitution, the post-apartheid constitution, which is, I think, was widely celebrated um, around the world, both of those the kind of traditional West, Western concerns around freedom of speech and freedom of association, as well as more developmental issues relating to provision of housing, for example, both of those are, are included within human rights. Um, and so, you know, so it raises, human rights is actually so much more complicated than one would tend to think of if, if you happen to be kind of immersed in Western discourse on it. Okay, so let's we're going to deep dive now into this subject, and we've got a an amazing guest who I'm thrilled to have on the program for the first time. Uh, but before we get into our discussion, I think there's it's important to have a disclaimer that goes out because this is such a sensitive topic, particularly in the United States right now as it relates to China. Uh, number one, I am going to channel some of the Chinese thinking on human rights in order for some of those ideas to be present in our debate and our discussion tonight. That doesn't mean 
that I believe in those ideas. It doesn't mean that I am excusing the Chinese. It doesn't mean in any way that I'm endorsing. What do they say, Kobus? Uh, a retweet is not an endorsement. But I think <laughs> it's important that we have those ideas present in the discussion. So I am bringing that because I know if I don't say this, and this is just the, the nature of where we are today in, in sensitive issues like this, uh, the Twitter jockeys in Washington and New York, and you know who you are, um, will start hurling at me that I'm a panda hugger or that I'm a booster or that I'm some kind of apologist for the Chinese. That is not it. So I just want to get that discussion and that disclaimer out there. So for our discussion today, we are thrilled to have on the program for the first time uh, Dr. Stacy Links, who recently obtained her doctorate from the University of Utrecht in the Netherlands. She did her doctoral research that focuses on the human rights dimension of Sino-African engagement. Links has had a wide range of work experience in places in international development and security and human rights uh, in a lot of different countries, the Netherlands, South Africa, Senegal, Ghana, Haiti. I'm sure the list is very, very long. Uh, Stacey, thank you so much for, for joining us from, from the Netherlands today. Thank you so much, Eric, and thank you, Kuobus, for giving me this opportunity. Um, it's really uh, a pleasure for me to be able to speak about my topic, you know, very shortly after I've completed my doctorate. So, so thanks a lot. Well, first of all, congratulations on getting your doctorate. I know that's not easy. And also for taking a topic that is really understudied in academia on the Sino-African relationship. As I mentioned, in the eight, nine years that Kobasev and I have been doing the show, I don't think we've ever done a topic dedicated exclusively to human rights, which is shocking in so many ways because human rights is such a big part of the China-Africa relationship in many different ways. So let's kind of talk about this question of the narrative and you you in so many ways in your in in your thesis you talked about how the discourse is partial misleading and incomplete those are your words that you said in how to define the the discourse overall as it relates to the sino-african human rights why don't you just kind of give us an introduction as to why you think it is partial misleading and incomplete yes okay thank you so much for the opportunity and the and, and the question um i think Firstly, to start off, um, I, I very much uh, agree with your disclaimer. Having embarked on this topic um, has not been easy um, because it is so sensitive. Uh, one thing that I must say in terms of how I got to this topic is, you know, my background is in international relations. I'm South African myself, very much interested in South-South cooperation. And China-Africa relations has been, you know, the hot topic for the past what, what uh, I would say, 10 plus years. And um, what's interesting is that a lot of the, the scholarly work on China-Africa has really focused on the political dimensions, the economic dimensions, environmental dimensions. And human rights has been included, but on a very anecdotal kind of level. Human rights is kind of either avoided completely, as you say and rightly put it, uh, because of this notion of it being such a sensitive topic, or it's, it's kind of relegated to a footnote. Um, so what I kind of, uh, you know, embarked on was to really engage on the issue of human rights in these relations and to see whether or not um, a lot of the dominant discourses perspectives had any weight to them. So that's what I, that's, that's kind of what, what sparked what sparked this research. And then you uh, rightly pointed to my, let's say, categorization or analysis of the, the discourse as partial and misleading and incomplete. 
And um, the reason for this, obviously, I've done, you know, uh, four and a half years of research on this. But um, the reason why I have come to these conclusions um, is also it, it relates a lot to what Kuwaba said early, earlier on um, in terms of these different conceptions of human rights. And I think for the broader public who are not perhaps as well versed in the law or the, the, the field of human rights per se, what often gets missed is that human rights include civil and political rights. They include socio-economic and cultural rights, and they include these other rights, such as the right to development, the right to peace, um, etc. So these all form what we refer to within human rights scholarship as the International Bill of Rights. Um, and that's a very important uh, 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 issue to underscore, is that officially and internationally speaking, and, and from a legal perspective, um, you know, the Western perspective, as well as the, the Chinese perspective or the African perspective, they all constitute human rights. It's not that one is more human rights oriented than the other. Um, so I think it's very important that we that we um, underscore that. Um, but in terms of the discourse being partial and incomplete, I think part of it stems from this notion that the the discourse external to these relationships tends to fall into this trap of human rights being one thing. So human rights being only civil and political rights and kind of discounting these, you know, broader rights, such as the right to development, the right to peace, um, which are very central in the developing world. So, um, so that's part of the reason why I come to this conclusion of, of the discourse being partial and incomplete and misleading. Can you unpack a little bit about, um, you know, why do you think the Western conception of human rights tends to focus on, on civil and political rights over some of these other kind of rights? So, you know, kind of what, which aspects of kind of the Western position in the world or the Western, you know, list of priorities tends to, to narrow that focus? And, and why do they tend to not put this, the same kind of weight on things like the right to development? Yeah, um, that's that's also a, a good point and a, a good question that you raise. I think, you know, and, and this is what I also do in my work, is I take a very contextual perspective um, and historical perspective, too, in that I think when we try to understand international relations and international states, um, state identity is very important. And central to this is also the philosophical underpinnings the ideological underpinnings, the historical experiences of a given state or a given community or a given society. So the Western focus on civil and political rights, I think, is a direct result of their own historical experiences. And this, you know, dates back as far back as, as the Enlightenment with uh, certain principles of individualism, of, you know, certain ideas concerning the state and state um state population relations. So so this idea of civil and political rights is a priority in the West. And, you know, understandably so. I think when you look at the developing world and you take context into consideration again, um, civil and political rights were something that were fought, you know, they, they were fought for under the umbrella of, of independence movements. So 
you know, the idea of sovereignty, of autonomy, of being independent states was really what drove these civil and political rights. After that, what, what happened and what you see in Africa is that now that civil and political freedoms have been achieved, development still remains, you know, a large, large issue that has just not been, you know, nearly as, as achieved as what one would have hoped to, to bring about the kind of poverty reduction, to bring about the kind of um, um, inequality closing of gaps um, and just basic needs uh, for the general population. So I would say, you know, context is really is really of great importance when you look at these issues of human rights and human rights prioritization. I mean, I would also, you know, like add to that in in the sense that I also wonder, and you know, I'd love to get your 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 thoughts on this. I wonder whether, to a large extent, the 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 Western experience of development is so far back in its history that it doesn't that it doesn't necessarily have such a you know a very kind of clear idea of what systemic underdevelopment means you know and that in a in a lot of ways you know systemic underdevelopment or, or constant you know systemic poverty operates in a very similar kind of way to authoritarianism in the sense you know in, in its effect on individuals in the sense that you also can't go where you want to go. You can't meet who you want to meet. You can't do what you want to do. Not because you're going to get arrested by the police, but because a set of systemic structural ways that your life is, is has been constructed means that you are constrained on all sides, as if you're living in a police state. Yes. No, I, I, I fully agree with you there, Kuobus, and you've actually summed it up uh, better than what I could. Um, and, and I think this is part of the problem. Uh, and, and part of the problem when it comes to dialogue on these issues of human rights across um, developmental borders because, you know, um, at, at the end of the day, the, the priorities that the, that the West face are just completely different, you know. Um, development has arguably um, reached its peak or at least reached a peak where, you know, the, the, the traveling of, of people, the... the um, you know, in terms of cross-border travel, in terms of the, the freedom to movement, you know, the right to clean water, uh, uh, right to housing, all of these things are, are established. So they just don't feature in the minds of Western policymakers. It's not a priority for their societies. Um, and this is, you know, this is um, understandable that their priority is then therefore placed that much more on civil and political rights. But as you rightly point out, you know, the kind of chronic underdevelopment that we see in Africa and China too, obviously China has now made, made a lot of progress in recent years, but especially in Africa, these are major, major impediments to the progress of human rights and to the fulfillment of, of human rights on the continent. So I would very much agree with, with your analysis on, on that point. Support for this podcast comes from the Africa China Reporting Project at Witt University School of Journalism in Johannesburg. The ACRP provides reporting grants, workshops, and other professional development opportunities for both African and Chinese journalists. Follow the ACRP on Twitter at Wits China Africa or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. The Chinese view on human rights in Africa is very, very controversial because I think what you've just said 
in terms of the Chinese emphasis on social and economic rights, which is really the historical experience for the past 40 years in this country, where they have developed from a country that was poorer than Africa 40 years ago to now the second largest economy in the world, with in some parts of the country living standards that now rival the West, as really evidence of the validity of their approach. But at the same time, when they see the social controls, the political controls, the authoritarianism, the heavy hand of the state, the censorship, surveillance, all of the, 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 the shortcomings on the civil and political side, it makes people nervous. So I guess my question is when you were doing your research and you were talking to, to African actors about when they look at the Chinese model, did you hear people saying – well, we like what they bring in terms of economic development, but at the same time, we also want to maintain our own approach on civil and political. Or did you hear things like what Paul Kagame is doing, which is basically mirroring the Asian approach, which is downplaying civil and political rights and really focusing on economic and, and social. And to some extent, he's got results that show that it's working. What were you finding out in your research in terms of... Uh, of, of how people reacted to the Chinese model. Yeah. Um, in terms of my research, I, I will say that, you know, my research did focus on the Western discourse. So it didn't really focus as much in terms of African opinions or Chinese opinions on the human rights dimension. But obviously, you know, being at conferences and, and doing research, you, you, you run into these things and run into these opinions. Um, so from a very anecdotal perspective, I must say that, um, the issue of authoritarianism or, you know, uh, civil and political issues when it comes to human rights in China were very rarely brought up as a concern. Um, I, I would say that there was a lot more focus and a lot more optimism on the issue of, um, of development. And the issues that were raised that were of concern were more these issues that kind of or arguably came from this external discourse or this, you know, the, the dominant discourse on human rights. So a lot of the concern was actually framed much more in terms of uh, China being a neocolonial power, um, China being only interested in the extractive industries and only interested in industries that would uh, benefit their own, so to speak. So you know, the emphasis on civil and political rights actually didn't come up that much in in conversations with people. Um, but a lot of the criticism was more informed from this dominant uh, external discourse, I would say. Oh, and how how did this discourse look at the role of African governments? Um, there seems to me in some, in some of the, the kind of maybe slightly less careful kind of Western um, articulations of this discourse, I've seen this kind of assumption that all African governments are essentially the same and that way that they are is essentially corrupt and weak, like easily, you know, kind of easily manipulated or easily bribed. Um, and that there is, you know, that, that there is this kind of like base level of, of tendency towards towards a, a lack of human rights in, in African governments. Is, it, you know, is that something that, is that how you would characterize the, the kind of Western view of the African governments or am I am Yes, I no, that, um, that was definitely um, something that came up. Maybe what I should say is that um, in terms of the structure of my research and, and how I analyzed the discourse, um, I looked at three broad representations or, or three dominant representations in the discourse. And the one was representations of human rights the second was representations of the nature of relations. 
And the third was representations of the actors involved. And what you're speaking to um, speaks to the issue of representations of the actors involved. And what the discourse, uh, what the, the discourse represented most dominantly was precisely this view that um, African leaders are corrupt, um, that African leaders cannot be trusted to, um, to take on the issue of human rights for their constituents. Um, and this is what I pointed out as, as being quite characteristic of the discourse, where the discourse framed the actors in such a way um, that it mimicked this idea of uh, victims, savages, and saviors. Now, there's a human rights scholar that um, his name is Makua Mutua, and he looks at the human rights discourse in this kind of framework of victims, savages, and saviors. And what you see in the, hu in the uh, discourse that I looked at in terms of the dominant discourse of uh, human rights in China-Africa relations is you see the same kind of reproduction of this narrative where the victims are the African uh, populations, the savages are the African leaders, as well as the colluding Chinese leaders, and the saviors are the West. Um, so this, this uh, characterization was extremely dominant in, in the discourse. Um, and, uh, you know, for, for me, that's extremely problematic, firstly, because of the generalization of that, of that, um, of that representation, as well as, um, you know, a lot of the times these claims would be, would be made and they remain simply unfounded. Um, or very difficult to actually quantify or to actually establish. Let me ask you a question. As you're doing your research and you're talking about the Western discourse, I want to bring up a, a challenge that I run into on places like Twitter and social media. When I hear people in the West, the United States and Europe in, specifically, saying um, that one comment came up, for example, that China treats its minorities terribly. And obviously with what's going on in Xinjiang right now, that's a big topic of discussion online. I just put back the retort that said it's ironic that an American is kind of saying this in part because we have 20% of the world's uh, prison population. A significant majority of that is minority. Uh, obviously, black men in the United States face difficulties with police violence and police brutality. I mean, the list of, of poor treatment uh, of minorities in the United States is endless. And what came back to me was, well, that's whataboutism. And, and that seems to end the conversation at that point. You can't have a conversation. And I guess my point that I was trying to make was I think it gives the West more moral legitimacy in the discussion to say that we have difficulties. We admit that we have difficulties and we are trying to work on them, even if we're not. Because I think if you're a minority in the United States, you would question whether or not people are working on it, given what's happening with voting rights and other things like that. But that's fine. We're a more transparent, open system, and we are trying to be better. And, and, but yet, when you have this discussion, it just shuts down so fast. That's whataboutism. How did you navigate this when emotions run so high in a topic like this, especially with Americans who struggle to look at their own cultures having any type of human rights problem. No, yes. Um, Eric, that was a, quite a, a tall order for me during the past four and a half years. And I myself had to, had to grapple with it um, on, an, on a number of levels. Um, 
I think, you know, I do think that the argument of something being whataboutism is is a dead end. Um, it's not productive. It doesn't provide for dialogue. Um, it doesn't provide for a space of of engagement. And, you know, when, when people uh, accused me or said that, you know, what I was doing was largely whataboutism, um, my response was that, well, we need to engage with these issues and we need to engage with them critically. Um, to shut down a, a dialogue or a conversation by, you know, pulling out the whataboutism card for me is um, speaks volumes in terms of how much people actually want to engage and actually want to find solutions um, for these issues, uh, particularly when it comes to human rights. Because at the end of the day, um, my primary concern is how do we effectuate change as best possible? How are we able to open up dialogue so as to best protect human rights? Um, and, you know, this this back and forth or this approach, which tends to be very Western, and I know I'm making generalizations here, but, you know, the, the approach of naming and shaming um, has not gotten the West very far in terms of effectuating change when it comes to human rights. And I think at the end of the day, we really need to look at whether or not the policies that we advocate for, whether that be through uh, conditionality, which, you know, is a favorite uh, amongst OECD countries when it comes to human rights, whether these kind of policies and these kind of ways of engaging human rights, whether they are productive at all and, and what is the desired change that we want so, you know, there still remains a, a, a large group of people that would that would argue my, my work to largely be a whataboutism. But I think it's um, it, it's also very necessary because each context is different. Um, you need to understand the Chinese context for what it is. You need to understand the American context for what it is. It's not a game of, of tallying up, you know, violations. Um, and I think this, the, the idea of, of moving away from whataboutism or, or saying, yes, but, you know, you can't say the same about uh, or you can say the same about China or you can't say the same about America. That kind of back and forth sets up the human rights discourse in a very binary way where you have actors that are either human rights supporters or human rights spoilers. And the reality is a lot more gray than that, um, is a lot more nuanced than that. And I think that's my main message that I want to bring across in my work is that, you know, uh, setting up the human rights dialogue in, in such binary ways is counterproductive at the end of the day to us actually establishing and actually moving forth in, in supporting and protecting human rights globally. Well, I, I am just so glad you said that because it's exactly that. It is nuanced. It is complicated. It is not binary at all. And that's the whataboutism really does. You're either with us or you're against us. The situation in China is either you're either, you know, if you don't accept everything, then you're for them, you know. And, and what's happening here is there are some horrific things that happen here. There's no denying it. 
but there are also some amazing things that happen here on the, on the human rights front as well. And both have to be factored in. And that's the complexity, I think, in so many ways of looking at China and a continent as diverse as Africa is that it really defies those simple characterizations. So uh, we're glad that you are delving into this research, that you're one of the first, if not the first, that's done this uh, on an academic and scholarship level. And so we hope that there are more of you out there. So if you're a young PhD student looking for a pathway to go, I think human rights is probably one of the, one of the better ways to, to go. Um, Dr. Stacy Links and her newly minted PhD uh, from the University of Utrecht are joining us from Netherlands. Uh, she again did doctoral research on the human rights dimension of Sino-African engagement. Uh, Stacy, very quickly before we go, if this is a topic that interests our listeners, and because there isn't a lot out there and you just did four and a half years of research on this, where would you recommend that they go to read this? Can they actually find your thesis on this, your dissertation? Well, at this point, not quite yet, unless you would like to go to the Utrecht Library Reserves. Um, I am in the process of... <laughs> not the biggest audience, I would imagine, going to do that. No, not the biggest audience. But is there any resources online or any authors <laughs> or anybody you can recommend that people can dive deeper that you found intriguing as you were doing your research? I found um, a lot of critical human rights scholars, such as Makua Mutua, I mentioned him earlier, very interesting you know, a lot of my work was also based on Deborah Browdingham's work that, that we know on China-Africa relations in terms of myth-busting um, and kind of separating fact from fiction. Um, I myself would and have the plan to publish my, my work, so I will keep you guys posted about that and hopefully I can become a, a source of reference for those interested in the topic. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and congratulations again on your PhD. Thank you so much. Kobus, I am just rejoicing inside because it's so refreshing to hear someone say that this is nuanced. And I, you know, somebody who spent the past 10 years living in Africa, Vietnam, and now China uh, in developing countries that are not Western in their outlook on human rights, the discussions that I have are so different than the dialogue that goes on in New York, Washington, London, and Paris. And one of the things I think is so interesting is in the West, we tend to think that our views are universal, and they most certainly are not. And it's hard to imagine. And people will say, well, all of these countries signed on to the UN declarations that are global. They may have, but at the same time, they don't necessarily interpret those declarations in the same ways. And again, I, I'll say this, this is not a defense of, of any types of human rights violations that go on in Vietnam or China, but it is to say that the priorities of the average guy on the street are not the same as those as the average guy or a politician in the West. You know, in China and Vietnam, when I ask people, what kind of system would you prefer to live in? No one says they would like to live in an American-style system or a European-style system. The universal answer that I get is they want to live in Singapore, which is give me great services, great infrastructure, no corruption, everything works. You know what? If you have to make compromises on my civil and political rights, I'm okay with that if you just give me all the other stuff. And Singapore is most, I don't consider Singapore to be a democracy. I think that their civil political rights leave a lot to be desired. But they deliver on so many other things that people in this part of the world are so frustrated in terms of day-to-day -day corruption. Just things don't work. And that was the same discussion that I felt when I was living in the Congo, we had as well, where the Americans were in the place like the Congo talking about religious freedom, freedom of association, voting rights. And people were just like, what? 
you know, I want to talk about food. I want to talk about jobs. I want to talk about the dignity that comes of providing for my family. I don't want to talk about these civil and political rights. And people were just having two very different conversations. Yeah, they tend to, you know, I have a lot of, obviously, a lot of respect for, for a lot of the, the kind of Western approaches. But, you know, in living, you know, so for example, like the, the, the West tends to, Western development, um, you know, discourse tends to put a lot of, of focus on institution building um, and the importance of building, you know, building neutral institutions that are not easily, you know, that, that, that can't just be used for the ruling family, for example. But if you, you know, if in, in, a, in a situation like in Africa where, where there's very high levels of systemic inequality and very high levels of, of embedded poverty, any institution that comes up is so vulnerable to, to the, 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 you know, to, to being kind of used in some kind of way by whoever is in charge of it because the need is so overwhelming. You know, kind of, so it's, it's like a kind of a, there's a kind of a vacuum for resources and, and, and it tends to shape the, the structuring of whatever kind of social structure you put up um, you know so so in that sense the the way that the, the Chinese for example look at something like you know the, their concept of developmental peace where they essentially push development over peace building to, to the extent that even while you're still making peace, you know, you should already start dealing with development issues rather than having first the peace and then the development. Um, you know, that, that I think, on the, you know, if, if you look on, the, like, on the African on the ground situation, that frequently makes a kind of a pragmatic sense because as long as everyone is poor and no one has a job, it's very difficult to, to, to have any other, anything else you know, kind of any other kind of conversation going on at the same time, like because everything tends to, again, just be defined by the fact that everyone is poor and they don't have a job, you know, so, so it, it, the, the, the weight of the poverty tends to warp whatever kind of institution building you're doing, no matter how hard you're trying to boost civil society or the judiciary or whatever, everything tends to get kind of like misshapen by the fact that, that everyone who's involved in it is, is desperately looking for a little bit of extra dollars somewhere, um, you know, so, so it, just like on the ground, it, you know, some kind of mix of approaches, I think, seems so to make a lot of sense. So this is an issue that is obviously highly contentious, very, very sensitive, very emotional for a lot of people. I fully understand that our goal tonight was not actually to take a position one way or the other, but to really introduce the idea of what Stacy said is the nuance, the complexity, and the ambiguity in the issue. There is not one way to look at this, despite the fact that a lot of people want you to look at it their way. Um, I am certainly not advocating that one way is better than another. Um, and that by itself may be a rejection of the Western way, because as you and I pointed out, Kobus, the West oftentimes thinks that their views are in fact universal. Uh, but I can tell you as somebody who's sitting in a part of the world which doesn't see it that way, they are not universal. Um, again, that is up to you to decide if it's right or if it's wrong, but we'd love to hear from you. The other thing that's interesting about this uh, is the fact that we had this discussion tonight because Stacy reached out to us. She said that she had been listening to the show for much of her graduate school and it helped her kind of think and get introduced to different ideas on China Africa. So if you were doing things like Stacy, which are interesting and in the China Africa space and you would like to talk about it, just send us an email. Send us Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com and bam, we'll put you on. We love the fact that our community is also part of our show. So that would be something fantastic if you are doing something fascinating. We can't promise that everybody who writes us will get on, but if you are doing something interesting and a point of view, 
uh, that you think uh, that our audience would like to hear, please do reach out to us. We love that. Uh, listen, we'll be back again next week with another edition of the show. We have a couple extra shows coming up through the end of the year, and then we're going to take a break towards uh, Christmas time and New Year's. And we have our year end and year, what's it called? Our year in review, year in preview show that comes at the end of the year. So we always enjoy that one. Uh, but a few more left before uh, before the Christmas holiday. So until next week, for Cobas Van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at E. Olander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.